Chet gave a little bit of an introduction earlier about this mini-series that, Chet, uh, that Jim and I are going to be doing. As Chet preaches through Ephesians, we're just going to kind of be interspersing some, some sermons um, in a little mini-series called Promise and Fulfillment. And um, the, the purpose of, of the series is just to look at a subject or a place or a, um, just a, a, a motif, if you will, in Scripture and see how this was promised, usually in the Old Covenant, and then how that is fulfilled under the New Covenant. And so uh, this, we're going to start that this morning. The, the, the first topic I kind of took up, which turned out to be much more involved than I was expecting, um, is the temple. Uh, we're going to look at the temple, the promise of the temple. What, so I'm basically going to ask three questions, okay? What was the temple? Because I think when we hear the word temple, or we, we, we talk about the temple in Scripture a lot of us probably have different ideas about what that was. Um, I, I know I went through 18 years of my life almost growing up in the church knowing almost nothing about the Bible. Went to church three times a week, and when I got into college, I realized I don't, even, I don't, I don't know anything about the Bible. So I'm not going to take for granted that you even know what the temple was or what it looked like or, um, or the, what the purpose of it was. Okay? So I'm going to ask, what was the temple? What was the purpose of the temple? We're going to look at three purposes or three promises found in the temple. And then we're going to look where the third question is going to be, how are those promises fulfilled? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that we're going to be looking at several different passages in the Old and New Testament. Okay, I'm, I tried to narrow it down so it wouldn't be too tedious but we're still going to be flipping a little bit. So you might want to keep your finger here. If we go into the New Testament, we might come back. Um, I'm going to be quoting a lot of Scripture that I'm not going to have you turn to, or else we're just going to be spending the entire time flipping through Scripture. But uh, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 25. It seems like the past few weeks, Americans have been inundated with bad news. Now, if you're a bit of a news junkie like I am, then that's pretty much the case all the time. If you read the news like I do, um, you know that bad news sells, right? Bad news sells. But the past few weeks, at least to me, have seemed worse than usual, at least in terms of national news. Of course, we had the Boston Marathon bombings and the manhunt that followed. The whole situation left four people dead. As I read up on article after article following the story, as it went along, the whole situation, to me, seemed totally surreal. It seemed like something out of a Hollywood movie. (coughs) Two days later, a fertilizer plant explodes in rural Texas. As of now, the death toll, at least the last I heard, was 15. When it first happened, it was unclear if it was also a terrorist attack or not. Then just a few days later, a terrorist plot is uncovered and stopped in Canada. But perhaps the most disturbing and overwhelming news story, at least that I have been following, has been the trial of Kermit Gosnell, the Philadelphia abortionist who was on trial for the murder of four newborn babies. Now, former members of his staff have taken the witness stand and give an eyewitness testimony of Gosnell, Dr. Gosnell, 
delivering live babies in his clinic and then stabbing them with scissors into the back of the neck to snip the spine in order to terminate the life. The condition of his clinic was horrific, with the body parts of babies in jars lining his shelves and freezers. He has allegedly repeated these demented acts of violence against babies hundreds, even thousands of times. And there's actually record of him making jokes and laughing about it during the process, talking about the size of the babies and how much they moved and tried to get away from him. He made millions of dollars preying on the poor and weak and desperate of his city. And everywhere we look, we see people trying to make sense of this. We read articles using words like evil and horror. We see news anchors struggling to find words to describe the situation. We hear our friends and family members and coworkers talk about these things and try to figure out how someone could do something so evil, so horrific. How could this happen? What is wrong with our world? And my mind immediately goes to the book of Romans, chapter 8, where Paul writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And when I look around at the deception and the lies and the evil in this world, I am reminded that we are really longing for, in those moments, in every moment of our lives, to be in the presence of God. We long to be with our Heavenly Father. We long to be in His presence. When my son, Silas, follows me around the house, which he does every day, all day. And he asks me over and over, what are you going to do now, Dad? What are you going to do now? I'm going to go work on my sermon. What are you going to do after that? Well, I'm going to go do this. Well, what are you going to do after that? I know what he wants. I know that he wants me to do something with him. I know he just wants to be with me. He has that same longing that we get when we look at Kermit Gosnell and want to shout, how could this happen? What are we going to do now? In those moments, we are longing to be free from the bondage of our sinful condition and the corruption of our world and to be in the presence of our gracious and loving Father. Today, my goal is to show that in the promise In fulfillment of the temple, God has given us exactly what we are longing for. So when I preach, I like to give the point right up front. 
so that if everything else doesn't make any sense, at least you know the point, right? I'm just going to tell you up front, make it really clear, the proposition of this sermon is because God dwells with us, we are called to spread the light of his presence throughout the earth until the entire world dwells under God's tabernacle. Because God dwells with us, we are called to spread the light of his presence throughout the earth until the entire world dwells under God's tabernacle. Now remember my, the, th- the three questions I'm going to ask. What was the temple? What were the promises of the temple? How are those promises fulfilled? So let's talk first. What was the temple? But before we talk about the temple that was constructed in Jerusalem, we have to go back a little bit and talk about the tabernacle, okay? The tabernacle was essentially a portable temple. The story of the tabernacle begins at Mount Sinai at the ratification of the covenant or the the Ten Commandments, right? Remember that story in Exodus. This is Exodus 24 is where God begins to give instructions for constructing the tabernacle. You remember the story of Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. There he receives direct revelation from God, the Ten Commandments, but also explicit instructions on how to build and construct the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be erected in the middle of the camp of the Israelites as they wandered through, their, through the desert on their way to the Promised Land. It comprised the holy place and the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. You can see it there behind that second curtain. So you have the holy place on the outside, holy of holies on the inside. Over the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. This is where God dwelt with the high priest. The tabernacle bears many similarities to the, to the temple, which was later built by Solomon, which we're going to get to in a minute. Um, so we have the tabernacle. So starting with the tabernacle, we have this idea of God dwelling in the midst of his people. As the Israelites wandered through the desert, they would stop. They would make a camp. They would camp Um, around the tabernacle until God directed them to move on. They would tear the tabernacle down and then continue their journey along through the desert. Okay, But once the Israelites entered into the promised land and established themselves in the city of Jerusalem, King David began to long for a more permanent temple to be built. But it was David's son Solomon that would be the one to actually build the temple in Jerusalem. First Kings chapter 5 tells us, uh, Solomon sent word to Hiram, uh, you know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare which his enemies, uh, with his enemies that surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune, so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father. So Solomon was the one who actually, you know, built the temple in Jerusalem. First Kings chapter 5 then goes on to give us the details of the construction of this temple, which is very similar to the construction of the tabernacle. So Solomon's temple in Jerusalem 
replace the tabernacle that Israel had carried with them through their desert wandering. Now Solomon's temple was a magnificent structure consisting of three divisions. There was the outer court. You can see that here, the outer court, with a large bull. That's a large bull down here in the corner called the sea. The sea was used for washing of the priests. The priests would wash themselves before they would go into the temple. There were also ten smaller bulls that you can see. Those are for the washing of animal parts that were going to be used for sacrifices. The outer court contained the bronze altar where the priests offered burnt offerings. Then as the priests made their way into the temple, um, they came to uh, the first section, which was called the holy place. Now, this part of the temple housed the golden altar of incense, the golden table for the bread of the presence, and ten golden lampstands. We can read about those in, in 1 Kings, starting in chapter 5. And the third division was known as the most holy place, or the holy of holies. You can see it there. Um, point to it. So this is the holy place. The holy of holies is right there, or the most holy place. The inner, this inner sanctuary was where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you remember, was where the tablets that, that were given to Moses on Mount, on Mount Sinai were kept. They are inscribed with the Ten Commandments. Above the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat where God was manifestly present with his priests. And guarding the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim. Those are the, those angelic um, animals with wings guarding the Ark of the Covenant. So this is a broad overview of Solomon's temple. We can read about it in much more detail in 1 Kings 5 through 7, 2 Chronicles 3 through 5, where God gives very specific details on how these things are to be built and designed. About 400 years after Solomon's temple is built, it is destroyed by the Babylonians. We can read about this in 2 Kings 24 and 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. About 70 years after that, a second temple is built. On the same spot. This temple is some kind, sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple. We can read about this in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. And we're not told much about the details of this temple. But we do know that it paled in comparison to the original temple built by Solomon. Then, when Herod the Great came into power in about 20 BC, he organized a massive building plan. We are told that he completely rebuilt this temple even going so far as to replace the stone of the foundation. He extended the outer court of the temple and added magnificent walls and artistic flavor. Herod's temple was the temple that existed during the lifetime of Jesus and the disciples. There's a picture, a diagram of what it probably looked like. But even this glorious temple would not last. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans, never to be completely rebuilt. So, these were the temples of God's people. What started as a portable tent in the wilderness became a glorious symbol of power and majesty in the city of Jerusalem. It is no wonder that Jesus' disciples proclaimed to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stone and what wonderful buildings. But... Contained in that statement was exactly the problem. When the Israelites looked at and thought of their temples, they were not to think of it as an end in itself. Rather, they were to be reminded of the great 
goal of spreading the light of God's presence throughout the earth until the entire world dwelt under God's tabernacle. But what does this mean? How was the temple supposed to remind the Jews of God's grand purpose for all of creation? In order to get a glimpse of this, let's look at three purposes of the temple. So we know what the temple was. What's the purpose? What's the promise of the temple? The first promise of the temple was that the temple was the place where God dwelt among his people. Exodus chapter 25. Let's look at Exodus 25, starting in verse 1. God gave Moses specific instructions on building the tabernacle. Okay, So this is, this is dealing with the tabernacle, but the purposes are one and the same. Okay, Whether you're reading about the tabernacle or the temple, the purposes are the same. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the setting, for the for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Then in 1 Kings 6, we read that the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep the commandments and walk in them, I will establish my word with you and I will dwell with the children of Israel. So we have the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. The promise that God is giving is to dwell with his people. The purpose of the temple is to be a dwelling place for God in the midst of his people. From the beginning... Even going back to the Garden of Eden, we see that God has an unrelenting desire to be with his children, to bless them, to commune with them. The temple was to be the place where God communed with his people. We see this in the way that the the Israelites encamped around the tabernacle in the wilderness, with the tabernacle in the center of the camp. We see it in the construction of the temple in Jerusalem on the top of Mount Moriah so that everyone was able to look up and recognize the place of God's dwelling. But not only was the temple to be a place of God's dwelling, it was to be the place where God revealed himself to his people, the place of divine revelation. Look down in Exodus 25, verse 22. Exodus 25:22 says, "There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." Now remember, the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple, was the very dwelling place of God. It was here over the mercy seat, that the high priest was to commune with God. The priest, as the representative of the people, would receive God's divine revelation. No fuller revelation could have been made than the revelation of God's very presence, his very words given to the priest 
in the Holy of Holies. The temple priests had access to the mind of God. Deuteronomy 33 tells us. And he instructed the people in the law. Now this instruction, which, which emanates from the temple, is projected onto the age to come when the nation shall stream to Zion. So there's this, there's this idea of, of, even in the Old Testament, of looking for, longing for the day where God can receive, or when God's people can receive a fuller revelation of who God is. The temple was a place to pronounce vows and fulfill pledges. Even during the time of exile, when the temple was in ruins, the people of Israel would direct their prayers toward the place of the temple, knowing that God would hear. So the temple was the place where God dwelt among his people. The temple was the place of God's divine revelation. But receiving revelation was not the only function of the priests, nor was it the most important. The most important function of the priests was to make atonement for the people. Without atonement, there could be no hope of revelation. The temple was the place of atonement. Leviticus 16 gives detailed instructions on how atonement was to be made for the people of Israel. In Leviticus 16.32 we read, And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. So this practice of priests making animal sacrifices in order to atone for the sins of the people continued throughout the existence of the temple. So we see three primary purposes of the temple. It was to be the dwelling place of God. It was to be the place of divine revelation. And it was to be the place where atonement was made. But we also know that these purposes were not to be ends in themselves. As we read through the Old Testament, we see that these purposes of the temple did not accomplish what the Israelites were hoping they would accomplish. God removed his powerful presence from them because of their idolatry and willful rejection of him as their king. God's divine revelation came to them in the form of judgment and condemnation rather than life and blessing. God rejected their attempts at atonement because they sought to honor him with their lips while their hearts were far from him. So, it seems that even in the midst of greatness and splendor and a beautiful structure, something was incomplete. Something was still lacking. And when we come to the end of the Old Testament, we see that God's people, rather than being gathered around the temple, worshiping, they are scattered. They're dispersed. They are confused. They are eagerly awaiting some kind of fulfillment to the promises that God had made. If our glorious temple has been destroyed, if our people are scattered throughout the world, 
If our prophets are not receiving revelation from God, then it seems like God's promises have failed. But we believe that God always fulfills his promises. So how, how have these promises been fulfilled? That's the third question I want to ask. How were the purposes of the temple fulfilled? Remember the first purpose. The temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. But we have a problem. Because even Solomon, the builder of the temple, when he dedicated the temple after it was built, he proclaimed in 1 Kings chapter 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So even at the dedication of the temple, as Solomon stands before it in all of its splendor, he knows and proclaims that it is not an end in itself. God can't dwell on the earth. Not even heaven or the highest heaven can contain him. He is a spirit, after all. God cannot be contained in a man-made structure. So there must be something more. Even Solomon could see that the temple was pointing forward to something greater. And when we come to the New, to the New Testament, we see Jesus making a startling claim. Turn with me to John chapter 2. Verse 18. John 2. In John chapter 2, we read about Jesus fashioning a whip of cords, entering the temple in Jerusalem and driving out the sellers and money changers that were there. And then the Jews, who were no doubt very offended by this action, asked him a question in verse 18. What sign do you show us for doing these things? So in other words, why do you think you have the authority to do this? Give us a sign. Prove us a sign that will prove who you are. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John gives us a commentary on Jesus' words. He says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jews had made the temple into an economic enterprise instead of a place of worship. Christ's radical act in cleansing the temple was a parable of judgment against the temple. Not only because of its misuse, but because it represented Israel's rejection of God's word and commandments and ultimately the rejection of Jesus himself. The second temple had failed to achieve the end time purpose for which, it had been for which it had been designed. And here, Jesus clearly identifies himself as the true temple. 
This affirms what John has already said in chapter 1 of his gospel. The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That word dwell literally means to pitch a tent or to to tabernacle. When Jesus, as the true word, dwelt among his people, he replaced the temple. The physical temple became obsolete when the true temple came. And the locus of worship shifted from the temple structure or the temple mount to the person of Christ. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus fulfills the purpose of God dwelling with his people. But that's not the only way that God dwells among his people. Because as you know, Jesus is not here with us in bodily form, right? He ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all creation. But as we read on through the New Testament, we see that the church is also identified as God's new temple. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And those yous are plural. You, you all, the church are God's temple. So we see that even though Christ is not with us in bodily form, he still dwells with us by his Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit dwells in us, we are being built up, as Peter says, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So the temple was not God's ultimate plan for how he would dwell with his people. It was pointing forward to something much greater. The coming of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is the fulfillment of God's presence. God no longer dwells with his people, but in them. He no longer communicates to his people through the ministry of the priest but now reveals himself through the ministry of the word of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But remember, the temple was also the place where God revealed himself to his people. Remember that second purpose of the temple. The first, God dwelt with his people. The second, the temple was the place of God's divine revelation. The Jews prayed towards the temple because God's manifest presence dwelt there. But only the priests were allowed entrance into the temple, and only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement. So even the way that God revealed himself to his people seemed to be pointing to something greater. Only one man can enter, and that man has to enter behind curtains. Remember what happened when the Israelites approached Mount Sinai. Remember this, when when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Turn back with me to Exodus 19. I told you we're going to be flipping quite a bit. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. 
says this, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Now skip down to chapter 20, verse 18. Chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. So after God gives, gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the people respond by saying, Moses, you can speak to us, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Now, what's the point of reading all that? The point is this. We see God longs to dwell with his people. He longs to reveal himself to us. But we also see that this divine revelation is not possible without a mediator. Because people are sinful and rebellious, we are not able to enter into the presence of God. God is a consuming fire, and those who seek to draw near to him will be consumed because of their iniquity. So even in the ministry of revealing himself through the pre to the priests, we see there was still a need for some kind of greater revelation. Priests were sinful human beings as well. And God's revelation was not fully disclosed through the ministry of the temple. The only way that God could fully reveal himself to us was to actually take on flesh and dwell among us. And that's exactly what he did. God's word dwelt among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. It was this divine revelation that served as the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to reveal himself to his people. Turn back to John chapter 1. I'm just going to read just different verses from the beginning of John 1. I'll be skipping, skipping down a little bit. But John 1, starting at verse 1, says, uh, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. When we talk about divine revelation, there is no fuller revelation of God than Christ. God taking on flesh, dwelling among us. We see the nature of God displayed in the person of Christ. When Jesus came into the world, he came as God's word. Every word he said is to be understood as God's ultimate revelation of himself to his people. Jesus came to be the mediator, the God-man that would bridge the chasm that separates God from his creation. He came to make all things new. And he does this by becoming the first new man. But remember the third purpose of the temple. It was to be the place where atonement was made. The temple was God's dwelling place among his people. The temple was God's place of divine revelation. But it was also the place where atonement was made. You see, Christ coming to earth and revealing the true nature of God and actually dwelling among his people on the earth is a great and glorious thing. But because God is holy and just and because he came to right all the wrongs in the world, well, we are what's wrong with the world. Therefore, that is just going to result in further judgment and condemnation for us. Right? If Christ just came to reveal God to us, God the Father, that is not good news for us. Because God is a consuming fire. And we are sinners. We are condemned. We are judged. Unless our sins can be covered and a new righteousness can be given to us, then Christ can only be our judge and we have no hope of eternal life. The temple was the place where atonement was made. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Skip down to verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Over and over in the New Testament, we read that Christ is recognized as the one who has made atonement for the sins of his people. He is the one that offered himself as a propitiation. It's a big word. That word simply means that Christ gave himself as an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. So that wrath, that consuming fire that will burn us up, that will destroy us, Christ took on himself. He made atonement for his people. Christ was both the sacrificial lamb who took the wrath of God upon himself on behalf of his people and Christ was the scapegoat from Leviticus 16 that bore the sins of the people outside the camp. Romans 3.25 puts it this way. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. 1 John 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, because we haven't, but that he loved us and sent his son to be what? The propitiation for our sins. The promise of atonement represented in the temple was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In order for God to dwell with us, we must be made holy. God requires a holy people. And what God requires, he also provides. Romans 8, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So we see the three promises of the temple have found their fulfillment under the new covenant. God has provided atonement for his people in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. God has divinely revealed himself most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God now dwells by his spirit in the church as the new temple of God. So, what's the point? Do we just 
pack up our Bibles and go home now? Is all of this just theological information to help us understand the Bible better? Are we just supposed to understand these promises so that we can wow our friends with all of our Old Testament temple knowledge? Well, as we so often do, I think there's a vertical response and there's a horizontal response. First, I think we're called to stand amazed at the love of God. When we look at the promises of the temple, how those promises have been foreshadowed and extended and expanded and then fulfilled under the new covenant, we are able to see the lengths God has gone to be with his people. From the beginning of creation, the Garden of Eden, the first temple, God has longed to dwell and commune with his creatures. From the beginning, man has sought communion with everything else. And yet, God in his mercy has always given man a way to know him and to meet with him. It is God who has always taken the initiative in creating and calling a people to himself for his own possession. And he does this strictly out of his steadfast love and mercy. We, you, have not earned the right to have a relationship with God. The only thing you have earned is condemnation. We don't deserve to be in God's presence. We don't deserve to have any access to him whatsoever. But he longs to be with us. When I see my son follow me around the house, what are you going to do now, Dad? What are you going to do now? (laughs) There's a part of me, when I see that, I long to be with him now. If I was with him every time he asked, I would never get anything else done. So I can't be with him. I can't just do what he wants to do all the time. But, but there's a part of me that's I recognize that longing. I long to be with Silas. I long to play with him and to wrestle with him and to color with him. And if we, who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does God long to give good gifts to us. So let's worship and adore him because of the way he has loved us, the way that he has condescended to us. That's the vertical. But there's also a horizontal implication as well. There's one more text I want to look at. Turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Now we're, we're going to read a pretty, pretty lengthy passage, and we're almost done, okay? I know it's been rough. A lot of long passages, a lot of, just a lot of information. Stick with me, though. We're almost, we're bringing it home. 
Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then came out of the seven angels, and then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I think I skipped down, right? Yeah. You ever know where we are? Verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So here it is again. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates at the 12 And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Verse 13, on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So John, let's just recap, John sees a heavenly city descending from the sky. He says it contains the glory of God. It's the dwelling place of God. Now look down at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see from John's vision that in the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be no temple. Why? Because the entire creation will become the dwelling place of God. The light of his presence will be manifested everywhere there will be no need for the temple no need for the priestly ministry of sacrifices because the lamb who was slain will be in our midst and we will finally and permanently be with him forever that's where we're going that's where we're headed that's what we're looking forward to so when we look at our friends our family members, our enemies, and those that we come into contact with every day trying to make sense out of this world, 
We have to remember that they have the same longing that we have. They are longing for a world free from evil, free from violence and confusion and moral depravity. Even though they don't recognize it, and many of them would deny it, they are longing to be with their Heavenly Father. Who will tell them that God longs to be with them too? Who will tell them that their Father has revealed Himself through the person of Christ? And who will tell them that their sins and the sins of Kermit and Gosnell and the sins of Jokar Sarnaev can be forgiven because atonement has been made? Who will tell them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a glorious thing. It is a a heart-moving thing to see how your promises have been fulfilled under the new covenant. God, we thank you that you have called us here, that you have called us together, that you are building this church to be a, a temple, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Father, we ask that you would continue that work by your spirit as you indwell in us. You would empower us, Father, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And that we, God, would take the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We would tell the world atonement has been made. God longs to be with you. Repent of your sins. Trust Christ. God, we thank you that your work is completely done. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.